If you're able, please turn to Genesis 43. In a moment, I'm going to read the entirety of our passage. So it's going to take probably 10 minutes. We're going to read 43, 44, and 45, 1 through 15. The reason is because it's that good and that inspired, and it will change your life as it changed mine. But first, as you're turning there, um, Genesis has pretty clearly shown us who God is. So this morning before I left, my wife and kids, they'll be at the 11th. So I left them behind and I kissed my oldest on the cheek because she didn't want me to drive in a car that was separate from the car she'll be in. So I hugged her and I gave her a little kiss and the sun was coming in through the window. And Genesis tells us why that sun is up there and why my daughter felt that way and why she has a cheek to kiss and why I have arms that wrapped her up, why all of that exists. It exists because God is good and because he made a world that is filled with good things. And in Genesis 1 and 2, it's perfect. Everything fits together beautifully. There's a sun and there's a moon. There's male and there's female. There's land, dry land, and water. And all of it reflects the glory of God. All of it. And then, at some point between the seventh day, when everything is good and perfect, and now, when everything is infected, at some point in between that, sin does what it always does. It promised life and it delivered death. Sin's like the worst Amazon delivery driver ever always promises more than it can deliver. And so because of that, there's these fractures and fissures that show up in everything for the rest of Genesis. Even in chapter four, right away, right after the sin, what do we see? We see a brother murder his brother. And then through Genesis four, all the way to where we are now, we have seen men uh, rape. We have seen men and women lie to each other. We've seen Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen what sin can do and the ugliness that it leaves behind, some of which we have experienced in our own lives. All of us have experienced what sin does. But that's not the end of the story, right? In fact, it's not even the end of the Genesis 3 story when sin first enters the scene. Because right there, God promises that he will crush the head of the serpent who deceived our first father and first mother. Right there, God promises the gospel. And I can picture him too. Do you remember where God takes the skins of an animal and clothes Adam and Eve with it after their sin? Do you remember that part? I don't think I'm overstepping my bounds to say that I can see the tenderness of God's hands as he does that. Have you put your coat on your daughter on a day where you send her off to the bus or right before you take her to the van to take her to school? How do you do that? Do you do that because the book says you have to? Or do you do it looking at her smiling and loving and knowing that you would die for this child? And that's the tenderness of the God who's in Genesis 3 and all the way through the rest of the Bible and who exists today. It's because he's like that that we have hope, and it's because he's like that sin doesn't get the last word. And that's what we see in 43 through 45. So let's read it, and then by God's grace, I'll faithfully proclaim to you what's there. 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you'll send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel, Jacob, said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? You have another brother. 
What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah, speaking for all the brothers here, he's going to do this several times. Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we hadn't delayed, we'd now return twice. So their father, Israel, said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds, and take double the money with you and carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps, perhaps it was an oversight. And take, take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. And may God Almighty, El Shaddai, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present. They took double the money with the man Benjamin. They arose, they went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. Now, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring those men into the house. Slaughter an animal and make ready. For the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him. He brought the men to Joseph's house, and the men were afraid, I bet, because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, oh, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we're brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us slaves and seize our donkeys. Ridiculous. So the men went up. This is the king of Egypt, like he needs your donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh my my Lord, we we came down the first time to buy food. And and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us and we brought other money down with us to buy food. We don't know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, Joseph's steward, who knows what these men did presumably, who's been coached by Joseph, presumably, says, Peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they washed their feet, when he'd given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread there. And when Joseph came, they brought into the house to him the present that they had, and they bowed down to him to the ground, and he inquired about their welfare. He asked how they were. He checked in on them. He inquired about their welfare, and he said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, you're, you're serving our father. He's well, he's, he's still alive. And they bowed their heads and they prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, the only full brother he's got among the lot. And he said, is this your youngest brother? 
Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Not the Egyptian gods. God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother. And he sought a place to weep. This picture of our Lord sought a place to weep because his compassion grew warm. And he entered his chamber and he wept there and he washed his face and he came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. So they served him by himself, them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. Because Egyptians couldn't eat with Hebrews. It's an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Who is this prince of Egypt that would give us food after he presumably we stole from him? Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry. Give them the food. And put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, put my cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. He did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with the donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. And they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. So how then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be my Lord's slaves. The steward said, let it be as you've said. He who is found with it will be my slave. The rest of you will be innocent. So then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. And when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah, again speaking for the brothers, said, What, what do we say to my Lord? What do we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Pause. He is not talking about the cup. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do that. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my slave. As for you, as for you, go up in peace to your father. And then Judah, speaking once more for all the brothers, went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please, 
Please let your servant speak a weird word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant because you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy can't leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Well, we went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we can't go down if our youngest brother goes with us, we'll go down, but we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. And if you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. So... As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and this boy is not with us, as his life is bound up in this boy's life, as soon as he sees this boy's not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant, I, Judah, became a pledge of safety for this boy to my father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, I'll bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, please, let your servant, let me, Judah, remain instead of this boy as a slave to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. How can I, how can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I would be too. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near. Come near to me, please. They came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. The famine has been in the land these two years. There are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and 
God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. It was not you who sent me here. Do not be distressed or angry because it was not you who sent me here. But God. And, and he's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house, a ruler over all the land of Egypt. So hurry. You go up to my father and you say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God's made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't tarry. And you will dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. And you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come. So that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. This man standing there as the king of Egypt and he's concerned about the, the brothers who sinned against him. Your eyes see. And the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You haven't seen it since the day you threw me in a pit. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers. Don't miss that. He kissed he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. This does not happen. This does not happen if Allah made the world. The reason this happened is because the God with the heart of Jesus Christ the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God revealed in Genesis with the desires and the long-suffering and the faithfulness and the promise-keeping of Yahweh, that God made the world. This is not a hero story of Joseph. This is not told to us so that we can go out and try to pull up our own bootstraps and be like Joseph. This is told to us so that we can see Joseph was molded by the God who is like this, who is forgiving, the story is about Yahweh. So just bit by bit, as quickly as I can. Starting in verse 14, 43, 14, I want you to see what Jacob does in the moment of despair. So Benjamin is, Jacob is not a good father in many ways. So let's just, I think we know that by now, right? We've all been, I mean, you saw what he did to Dinah or didn't do for Dinah. So we, we know Jacob is not like the guy that you want to go emulate as a dad in every possible way. But there is something about Jacob that as a father, I should copy and do not copy enough. And it's that he prays like there is no tomorrow. He has an actual injury from prayer. How many of us have an, an injury we can point to in our body because of a prayer we prayed at night? He limps because of a prayer he had. He has a new name because of a prayer he prayed. This is a man who seeks God in prayer. And so right here in the moment of despair, in addition to telling him to take gifts, he says in verse 14, may God Almighty, this just flows out of his lips, may El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man. El Shaddai is the name God first gives in Genesis 17 to Abraham when he gives the covenant of circumcision. God declares to Abraham, you don't know the name El Shaddai. I am telling you, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. 
And it's that name that Jacob invokes here in the moment when he's in despair. I don't know who this prince of Egypt is. I don't know what he's going to do. He seems like a fickle, unpredictable man. I have no idea why he would want my sons to take back my favorite boy with them. But he, he does, and he's crazy, and he's psychotic. I don't know what he, what's going to happen. So in this moment here of despair, I am shouting out, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Don't jump past that. Because what he's saying is, may God Almighty change what a pagan unbeliever, that's what he thinks this king of Egypt is, may God Almighty change what a pagan unbeliever does. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Someday, if, with a giant underline, the word if, if I send my kids to college, I'm going to wrap my hands around their faces and look them in the eyes and kiss them and love them and tell them the last few things they need to know before they go out into that world. But that is not the only thing I'm going to do. By God's grace, I'm going to plead, may El Shaddai grant them mercy before their teachers, before their landlord, before the police officer that pulls them over, before anybody they'll interact with, believer or unbeliever, because God is sovereign over everything. He decides when birds die. Not one sparrow falls without your father's say-so. So, so Jacob, who has trained his heart over a lifetime to cry out to God, does so right here in the moment of despair. By the way, hearts are like kiddos. You have to train them and spank them and ground them and feed them. All of that is required. When you discipline your heart well, then when the moment of despair comes, when you're looking at Benjamin and you're wondering if you'll ever see him again, when that moment comes, you'll find words like this falling out of your mouth because you have, over time, by God's grace, shaped your heart to, to run to God when you know nothing else will help you. And that's what Jacob does. And he's learned this from experience, right? So Laban was going to disrupt this whole family. Right now, Jacob's dealing with family disruption. He almost lost the family at the beginning. You remember? He was going to leave. And he was going to go home. And Laban was coming after him. And Jacob knew he was going to come after him. That's why he didn't tell him. That's why he didn't leave a forwarding address. He ran. And Laban is go, goes after him. And what happens the night before he finds Jacob? Who shows up? Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Laban tells Jacob that's what happened. And over and over this happens in Jacob's life. He gets, he gets insight into the fact that Yahweh is the one who will protect him. And so when he needs help here, when he's desperate, he goes to God. Verses 19 through 22. Notice this with me. So they go up to the steward of Joseph's house. They speak with him. And they say, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. When we came down to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. We've brought the money back. So they confess a little bit but they do not confess everything. In 42, 21 through 22, the brothers all agree this is happening because of what they did to Joseph. That's why this is going down. They know it. They know that God is disciplining them for what they did to Joseph. And yet, they don't ever say that here. They don't ever confess it. They only confess what they think is already known. Hey, the guy knows about the money. So let's make sure we tell him it was an accident, don't know how it happened, and give him the money back. So they confess only what they think is known. And the problem is that you've seen this other unconfessed sin, the greatest sin of their lives, has left years of damage. It's like toxic waste. You bury it deep down and you think it's gone, but then it gets into the groundwater. Their family has been disrupted by this thing for years. And all of it could have been undone had they confessed it, 
They didn't. The greater the sin and the longer it goes unconfessed or unforgiven, the bigger its blast radius. This sin has now put Simeon in jail. It's left Jacob with stage four anxiety that he claims is going to kill him. The more you hide it, the, the, the longer you hide it, the bigger its blast radius. Their envy led to bitterness, led to attempted murder, led to generational lying, led to Simeon locked up, led to Jacob going down to the grave grieving, or so he thinks. So, the God who puts things back together calls us to confess the whole thing. So we do something in my house. When I, when I get sinfully angry, we call it bad angry. I don't say, I am sorry that you made me bad angry with your smart aleck attitude. There's no qualifications. When we confess sin, we confess the sin as God sees it. We name it the way God would name it. Daddy is sorry he got bad angry at you and said mean words. Do you forgive me? And what we're doing there is we're trying, by God's grace, to not let sin fester and get infected the way it does here. There are husbands, there are wives, there are friends who have something to confess, and they don't, and they leave it buried in the sand. And the longer that goes on, the more these little weeds will pop up. And they may have nothing in your eyes to do with the sin you didn't confess. All I did was look at pornography. I didn't confess it, but why, why, am, I, why am I dealing with anxiety at work? Because of that, unconfessed sin that yields bad fruit for generations, for years, for generations. So the God who puts things back together asks us to confess it, calls us to confess it. Verse 23 of chapter 43. This is the, the verbiage that, that Joseph puts in the steward's mouth. The steward says, he replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Who is Joseph pointing to? You don't have to say it out loud, but we know this. Who is he pointing to? He is an advanced sketch of Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua, the Christ, the Christos. He is a portrait of Jesus Christ. And here he is, having been sinned against worse than I've ever been sinned against by anyone in my entire life. And he puts into the mouth of his steward... You tell them not to be afraid, to have peace. When I go to God frantic, which happens a lot, and I think, how could, this, how could this holy, righteous God want anything to do with me? How could he use me? How could he bless me? How could he answer this prayer I'm praying? There's, he's, he's just called me here to make me his slave and steal my donkeys. There's no way that this God would, would want anything with me when I do that. When I have that kind of a heart, when my heart is in that posture, that position, the God of Jesus Christ would speak to me the same thing that Joseph, the lesser Christ, speaks to his brothers. Peace be to you. I have received payment. And then I frantically reach into my spiritual back pocket and I try to find something else I can contribute. Maybe I can give him some good works as a quarter and throw it in the plate. I don't need to. The payment has been made. That is God's grace. And then also notice it's an Egyptian who's saying this. So this Egyptian would have seen the way pharaohs treat the people who wronged them, right? You remember what happened to the baker. He was either hanged or impaled. 
So this guy grew up in a society where the men who worship Osiris and Horus and Ra and Amenhotep, we know what they do to their enemies. They kill them. And this one, in whom that Pharaoh said is the spirit of the gods, this one, whom we're not allowed to raise a foot in Egypt without his say-so, this one treats his enemies like they're his friends, like his best friends, like his brothers, like people he's been waiting to come see him. He asks how they are. He gives them food. He tells them, peace be to you. You got you to gotta remember, forgiveness is a virtue of God's. It is a Christian virtue. And so that world out there, have you been to the BMV or the post office? We do not have a surplus of Josephs walking around North America right now. And so when Joseph or I or you exemplify the heart of God in treating our enemies like they are our friends, like we want God to bless them, like we would do something should God call us to do something for them. When we react the way Joseph did, we are giving that pitch black pagan world out there a lantern that shows them the face of God. This is what he's like. Your false gods, Egypt, are awful. But this is what the one true God is actually like. He is patient. He is forgiving. He is abounding in love a million miles deep. He is forgiving of faults as wide as you can make them. He is not like Anubis or Osiris. Your pagan gods that bicker and snipe and behave just like you do, but on a bigger scale. He is merciful. And in verses 27 and 30, I'm getting towards the end here. Verses 27 and 30, look at how Joseph reacts. He inquired about their welfare. That part always stuns me when I go slow. He inquired about their welfare. I don't ask my friends how their plane trip went. Did you get a flat tire on the way here? I don't care. He asks about his enemy's welfare on their trip to Egypt. He asks about their welfare, and then his compassion grows warm. He has to run out and find a place to weep. If you picture relationships as an engine, and I'm not an engineer like half of Christ the King, so I'm probably going to get this wrong. It's like everybody I meet is an engineer. Insecurity. Um, I work at Dunder Mifflin, basically. So if you picture a relationship as an engine, this kind of desire, this kind of compassion, this, this hope, it's like oil that takes away the excess friction and the excess heat. It keeps things lubricated. So God, and this is why Joseph is like this, because he is a man of God and he's been shaped by God's own heart and by God's tender hands. God is not in heaven with his arms folded and his foot tapping and waiting for you to say the right thing before he forgives you. How does Luke 15 picture him as the prodigal father? Is the father on the front porch? I'm going to listen to this speech. And if, if it's good enough, we'll let my son come back in. He doesn't even let the son get to the speech. He runs out. He wraps him up. The son tries to give the speech. And the father says, bring out the fattened calf and the ring and put them on this boy. Because I have been waiting for him the way he used to wait for summer break. This is the day I have been longing for. My son, who was dead, is now alive. And here's Joseph, and he's standing here, and he's been hoping, waiting. He's got all of Egypt. He's got a, a wife who's in the family of Pharaoh. He's got two sons already. He's got every tricked-out car they could give you in Thebes or wherever he lives. He's got everything Egypt has to offer, and yet he's been waiting for this, for these boys to come back to him and for him to have the chance to forgive them. Is that the aroma of my house or my cubicle or my car? Or my kitchen. If it's not, it should be. 
I don't ever want any of my six children to leave the house someday, wander off into sin like I did, and then wonder with hangdog hang expression and their, their head down, just hoping maybe, maybe, maybe when I get to the porch, dad will at least look at me again, look me in the eye again. I don't want that. I want them to know that they know that they know that they know that dad loves them and wants to forgive them. He's been waiting for the day to forgive them. Look at you. Joseph doesn't do this like, you know when you buy a table from Ikea? And you th- nobody should buy tables from Ikea. But if you ever buy a table from Ikea and it's like you take this tool that doesn't really exist and you put it in this slot that you can't find and you turn it the right amount of times and if you do anything else, the table explodes. <laughs> this is, that is not how Joseph is doing this relationship. He's, like, he's not like, okay, take out the forgiveness wrench and you turn it counterclockwise. And then if I do that, Judah will come up to me and he'll say, I'm sorry. And then everybody can come live. He's, he's waiting with, with bated breath for the chance to forgive them. Of course, they have to do something. We see that. But he wants to forgive them. And there are antibodies. I'm not a doctor either, so correct me on this one if I'm wrong. But there are antibodies in Joseph's heart here that will attack the pathogens of bitterness if you will adopt them. I've been bitter with people for years. And if I will take Joseph's faith here, his trust in God. It's not you who sent me here. It's not you who sent me here. It's God. If I will take Joseph's faith and apply it, it'll kill that bitterness. You know, there's no, there's no uh, notifications up on, in heaven on angels' phones telling them when it's time to go look and see. Jesus has now come. They're longing, Hebrews says. They were longing to look into that. And heaven rejoices When somebody like Judah or Simeon or Reuben or Levi or any of our wayward sons or daughters, heaven rejoices when those people come home. Heaven wants this part of the story. Heaven longs for this part of the story. Joseph is tender towards sin, but he is diamond hard towards bitterness. And so if you read this and you you see Joseph and you see him wanting to forgive, and your response is, because I know, I know people who have sin that has been done against them that is so grievous, ugly, selfish, poisonous, wicked. I know this happens. That then your response is, I can never do that. There is no way I can do that. You don't know what my father was like. You don't know what he did to me. You don't know how my mother manipulated me and our whole family. You don't know what happened to me. I can't do that. I know that that happens. But hear me. I believe the Bible's clear answer is correct. You cannot. Joseph was not some sweet guy whose temperament is something we're supposed to imitate. Joseph like Pharaoh said, a better prophet than he knew, was one in whom the spirit of the God lives. I know people get molested. They get beaten. They deal for decades with somebody who only sees them as a means to an end when they're supposed to be a mother. I know that happens. And the thing that makes your compassion grow warm the thing that makes you have to leave the room to go cry because you are so happy you get to forgive her now. The thing that makes that happen is the spirit of Yahweh. That is it. 
No one else in Egypt would have reacted this way. There was one man in Egypt who had this kind of power because there was one man in Egypt in whom was the Spirit of God. Last couple things. Verses 44, 1 through 2. There is a test. It is not reconciliation with no conditions. So Joseph has the servant put the cup in the men's sacks and sends them on their way and let them come back. And at that point, if they do not abandon Benjamin, he will give them the full privileges of brotherhood. So the principle here is that Joseph is forgiving. Joseph has forgiven them, and yet they could forfeit the privileges of brotherhood. There's a reason why the Bible lays out certain parameters for divorce. There's a reason why the Bible allows for the severing of a relationship, disinheriting a child. There's a reason why things like this are in God's holy word. It's because you can forgive someone. You can relinquish all your sinful vengeance, your desire for wrath upon them, like James and John, when they're like, should we call down thunder on these cities, call down lightning and fire on these cities? And Jesus, you don't know what you speak. There's a re- we can forfeit that right. We can forfeit that claim and yet still not give them the full privileges of the relationship again. And Joseph probably would have done that had they left Benjamin and abandoned him. But thankfully they didn't. So Joseph re- reveals himself and then in verse 3 He says, I'm Joseph, I'm still alive, and the brothers can't answer him because they were dismayed at his presence. So they didn't know yet that Joseph was going to forgive them. They're not forgiving, so why would he be forgiving? They don't know yet that Joseph has actually already decided that he was going to care for them and that that was God's will. Until you know that, you are dismayed in the presence of the one you've sinned against. My job is not to go around my office and tell every unbeliever, you shouldn't be dismayed in God's presence. You're wonderful. The way you write emails, it's great. I think he really wants you on his team. That is not the gospel. You should be dismayed in his presence until until forgiveness is applied to you through faith. And at that moment, the dismay falls away. And you never have to pick it up again. You never have to be distressed or angry again. Matter of fact, Joseph, the lesser Christ, tells them, don't be distressed or angry. I really mean it. I'm serious. And oh, by the way, on the way home, don't fight because I've forgiven you. It's gone. It's done. You thought I was gone. I'm telling you the sin is gone. You can, you can go to God without dismay after he forgives you. And that's the end of it. Verse 15. He kissed all his brothers, and he wept upon them. And after that, after that, his brothers talked with him. Once he fell upon them and wept and kissed them. Briefly, close here with an example. So first, I wasn't going to use this, uh, because it's it's a real-life miracle example, and I do mean miracle. Um, And it it carries in it some germs of, like, the extreme. And it's probably not going to happen in my life or your life. But this story carries carries in it germs of the extreme, so I'm just going to roll with it. So my father and my mother were morphine and heroin addicts before I was born. And they came from a good Christian home that adopted three children. They loved the Lord. They prayed. They went to school. They were taught well. These were God-fearing people. And one way or another, my father, uh, as a teenager, dropped out of school and ended up getting kicked out of the army. He was such a train wreck and uh, found a suburban woman who was my mother and led her into drug addiction too. So he wrecks his whole life. He steals World War II memorabilia from my father. He um, completely destroys his, the hearts of his parents. 
and the, the, the wreckage that sin had left at that point, as I'm sure both of my grandparents are in heaven, I believe. The wreckage that my father left behind in that Christian home, by his grace, by God's grace, it's something I'm never going to have to see firsthand. It was terrible. And yet, in 1983, my father had been given some tracts and bought some lunch by Christians. And so on his way to take a bag of heroin to my mom, he felt as though he heard God say to him, you throw it out or you die. So he chucked it on I-71, I believe. Hopefully no one else got it. <laughs> if God can talk, he can make a bag of heroin disappear down a storm drain. Um, so he pulls over, he weeps, and he just keeps saying the same things over again. Jesus, I'm sorry. Jesus, I'm yours. And he goes back and he tells his wife, my mother, and she asks for the drugs, and when he doesn't have them, leaves. So now my father is dealing with the wreckage of a family he left and the wreckage of a marriage he's imploded, and he has no idea what to do. And he told me this story a couple of times that he felt one day he was to take some flowers to the White Castle where my mom was uh, a manager, and he takes them and he says, Ruth, I love you, and gives her the flowers and he drives off. Didn't want to do it, didn't feel good about it, felt like a chump probably, and yet we're 30 eight years in to this new biography that God has written with new ink on a new page. And my parents, who the doctor said would never conceive children because of all of their hepatitis and other issues, have had five children, all of whom walk with the Lord, and all of whom have either married Christian spouses <clears throat> or are looking for one. If you know my brother Sam and you know a nice young lady. <laughs> Apparently some of you do. <laughs> so... This is the God who puts things back together in a way that Oprah and Dr. Phil cannot, in a way that Jordan Peterson cannot. This is a God who sovereignly, miraculously, judiciously, lovingly puts things back together. And he has done so for Joseph. So if he could bless you in the same way, Christian brother or sister, I'm asking you, Pray to him and ask him to do so. And if you are not a Christian, I am asking you, seek this God in faith right now as I pray. Father God, Abba Father, there is no God like you. There are many pretenders to that throne. There are many false gods. Every nation has them. The United States is no different. Every culture has them. Every day and generation and family has them. There are many false gods. None of them can do what you can do. And the best part of this story, your story, is not that you can do them. But for my money, the best part of this story is that you want to do them. That it makes you happy to do them. That you delight in taking brothers and putting them back under the same roof again. Please repair what is broken in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.